Hi, this is Robert Gowan. You're listening to uh, Mentors for Military and uh, podcast. And what we're going to be doing tonight is talking a little bit about planning and contingencies. We hope that you're in the Mixler chat room. If you're not, please be, uh, be sure to join us at mixlr.com. Uh, join us in the chat room. Talk to the crew live. Uh, I'm joined this evening by uh, Mike Pritz, uh, Susan Deo, Scott Kinder, and we have a guest uh, host with us this evening, uh, Ron Schwery. And so, Ron, we're going to jump in with you uh, because we want the uh, audience to get a little bit of a background on you and you know give us a little story about maybe where it is why you joined the military what branch you end up coming into and a little bit about your background yeah i uh i joined the army back in in 2000 and uh i was a uh, i graduated college um after four and a half years and uh and basically i was at my graduation party and my brother came up to me and he was a uh, Air Force for six, and uh, he just, he's like, he came up and said, hey, what are you going to do now? And I wasn't on the best path, you know, I wasn't hanging around the right people, and and so he kind of just said it off the cuff. He's like, hey, you know, if you join the, join the Army, they'll pay back your student loans, and I didn't think nothing of it at the time, and, uh, and he, I don't know if he really even knew what he was talking about, to be honest, and uh, so I... I joined the army. I started. I went to the recruiter, and uh, and just kind of followed from there, and ended up having to fill out all my recruiting paperwork myself because my recruiter wasn't that good at it. And, oh, you're uh, kidding! That's great. Um, so I filled it all out. Joined the infantry uh, in two thousand March of two thousand actually, and uh, uh, went to the infantry. I was there for maybe six months and uh, uh, my team leader just kind of said hey you know you're gonna be a college G4 that rides his time out or you're gonna go do something special either go to ranger school or go SF and and so I went I just you know went and saw the recruiting video for SF and I was like hey man that looks pretty cool and so so I went and uh, uh, just kind of the recruiter asked me if I could pass a PT test and I was like yeah like today <laughs> and so I did it that afternoon and, and uh where were you stationed at uh Fort Campbell okay and so I was with the 101st and uh so we started there and I went to selection and passed and then I had to wait for my my full year of service time uh in the infantry so as soon as I was there a year um, I was actually uh, filling out all the paperwork to PCS on September 11th. Uh, oh my gosh! So I was getting ready to go. All my gear was turned in, and I was I was supposed to go on leave that day, and uh, actually go to Fort Bragg. But a buddy of mine, I was going to Iowa first because he was getting married. I was going to take a uh, like a just a round trip there, and. Uh, so that was just a, that was an interesting little trip, but after after I finally got released, uh, did the Q course. I was a 18, uh, 18 Delta. I was a medic, and and I spent about two years in the Q course, and then uh, I went to fifth group, and then I was there for uh, two tours. So about um, two and a half years, I suppose. So, so did, and I got out in. Did you know Scott? Uh, March, uh, were you guys in the same time frame, Scott, in fifth group? No. Okay. We were in fifth group at the same time frame, but I don't recall Ron from 
either the Q course or fifth. Apologies. Yeah. I think we're actually in, yeah in the Q course almost at the same time because the uh, the first yeah. group of uh, um, X rays graduated in my graduating class. So yeah, Mike was probably your instructor. Uh, There's another chart. <laughs> so we had yeah. Congratulations on making it wrong because we flushed a lot of you guys. <laughs> Did you did you know Mike was there as an instructor at that time frame? Ryan? No. <laughs> yeah. So so you went on to uh the uh Q, you finished that and everything. You went on to fifth group and uh so at some point you ended up uh transitioning out of the military. Um and I mean you ended up kind of having a, a unique story because <clears throat> you know most guys when they come out are they look for the entrepreneurial spirit and you certainly dove for, uh Pete first into that. So how was it that you got into what you ended up doing within the entrepreneurial side? Well, we first off when I got out, I I went right to just regular work and uh um a little backstory on it. I was uh when I got out, I wasn't actually married yet and we had our first child. And, uh, and so I got out and I just took a job and I was decided to get as far away from military without moving out of town, um, as I could. And I, I did environmental work, um, for that first year about, and I stayed doing it. And then my wife, um, she was the one that really wanted to start a business. And so, so what we did was we kind of got everything together and we uh, we bought the uh, bought Savannah Tea Company. It was an existing restaurant in Nashville, and uh, that was in July. We finished the purchase of it in July of 2007. So when I got out in 2006, it was almost almost one year afterwards. We'd uh, started the business, started the, our bought the restaurant, and so. We went through the uh, Small Business Association. We got a part of a loan through them, and then we other um, we financed part of it through a second mortgage on the house, and then um, I think there was one other part of a loan too. Uh, a friend of ours that was a uh, he was a VP of a uh, I guess the uh, business loans department in a bank uh, back in Nashville. He was kind of our our point of contact for getting a loan. And it was, it was someone my wife knew for a long time. They they worked at a restaurant together in West Tennessee back when she was like 20 years old. So, so and he actually tried talking us out of, of buying the restaurant because he didn't think it was going to go that well. And uh, and you know at the start everything went great. The restaurant was doing well. I was still working uh, my other job as you know our stable income. And then uh, and then you know 2008 happened. And so. So the economy crashed, and and then kind of everything was, uh, uh, as far as our lives were going, uh, kind of got turned on their head. So I bet. So that was seven years or so, right? That you ended up, uh, you ended up with the restaurant. Yes, we we kept it going. So when two thousand eight happened, uh, my job was based in new construction, basically uh, environmental work, and. Uh, so I, I kept doing that until 2009, February 2009, I got laid off. And, and at that point, the restaurant was really struggling. And so we were like, uh, we, had to, we were going to shut the restaurant down or move it. And then I got laid off. So we were like, oh, 
So we decided we were going to move the restaurant and we moved it across town and halved our rent and um, it was pretty amazing and you know I had a lot of time all of a sudden so I did most of the repairs and all that's myself and then uh, so once we got it started up again then I uh, uh, then I started working again and I, I went and installed cable for a while and it was it was pretty crazy it was kind of a rotten summer but well, I mean, you know, we we're kind of the topic that we're going to be talking about tonight is kind of planning and contingencies, and certainly you worked through several different contingencies on your uh, your plan there. Um, I mean, you went from the restaurant business to the environmental uh, piece of it, uh, and now you're working back as a contractor. Is that right? Is with the DoD or right? So I I ended up uh, I ended up starting just part time contracting, just picking up jobs wherever I could uh, later that year. And uh, and I just happened to meet a guy that was just for whatever reason like me. It kind of took me under his wing, and uh, he had just transitioned out. And uh, he was another medic out of third group, and he just he basically uh, put me in contact with with a lot of different people for jobs, and um, and that's when I started working with Marsoc just part time, and then uh, I work full time with them now. And you kind of you kind of mentioned that uh, that's where you really found your passion, and there was a time period there while you were out where you you didn't really kind of know your passion sounded like while you were in, and then once you got out, you hadn't really found it as well. But now you're kind of you feel like you're more in your you know leading your purpose and your passion of what it is that you like to do. Well, I I loved when I was in. I had I mean I had a good time. I I, I mean I loved the job. I loved the work. I loved the people, but. Basically, what happened with me is, um, with with my wife, and then the birth of our first first child. I didn't think I could do every all of it well enough. You know, I didn't think I could be a good enough medic and a good enough uh, new husband and father. And so, basically, I, I don't know. I just didn't think I could do it good enough to, to try to do it all. And yeah, I was at a transition point, so I decided to get out so I could commit to being a husband and father. So, yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. And I mean, it happens uh, to a lot of us for sure. And trying to figure out how can you balance everything. Um, And sometimes it's just way too much to try to balance. And you end up having to make a decision in life of where it is that you kind of want to go. Sounds like that's what you did. And you, you know, you pick something that ended up getting you back into what you enjoy doing, but within a different uh, role. Right. And, you know, and as soon as I got out, even though I kind of cut ties with everybody that was on my team and everything, and I really didn't talk to too many people other than Mark, uh, who was a guest of yours a while back, um, the, uh, I really didn't talk to that many people, but I always followed the job, I guess. I always followed what was going on overseas, and I was following uh, different uh, blogs and websites and made sure, you know, as connected as I could without actually talking to the folks. And uh, they... Uh, and I guess I was always passionate about it. I just didn't know it. And eventually, especially when I was doing environmental work, stuck in an office all the time, I was hating life. I mean, I was stuck in a cube, and then I made it big time, and I got my own office after another uh, a coworker quit. And uh, and besides, you know, that was nice. You know, I had an office, but uh, man, sitting at a computer all day uh, in that kind of environment, it just wasn't for me. And right. I ended up getting laid off, but I would have left that job probably anyway. So. Can I ask you a question? Yes. When 
when you graduated from college and joined the Army, since you had a bachelor's degree, why did you not go officer? Why did you go enlisted? Um, well, honestly, I didn't think I was smart enough. I had no idea. You know, I didn't know anybody in the military. And so I was like, oh, my God, you know, I'm not ready to be an officer, you know. And, uh, yeah, I, I had no idea until I got there. So... All right, so let's uh, let's make sure we jump into uh, tonight's topic because I think what you've set us up for is a perfect lead-in to some of the things we're talking about in terms of, you know, having plans, having contingencies, you know, and uh, for me, it's really about uh, making sure that you're focusing on the, on the things that kind of really matter uh, most. And I'm going to talk more about it from a perspective of a career change. Uh, career change could be certainly if you transition from the military, a career change can also be, <clears throat> you know, if you're making a new job in the private sector. Uh, but, uh, you know, we want to we want to hit it from multiple different angles. And I know that uh, Scott and Mike might take it from an angle from uh, some of the stuff we do within planning within the military. So, Mike, I mean, uh, Scott, you, you brought up a couple things that, um, you know, you kind of stuck with while you were in the military. I mean, yeah, when we were talking post-show last time, Robert, you know, that's the foundation of my whole company, the Kinder Group, is based off of, you know, the things that I was lucky enough to learn, you know, talking with, you know, people like Mike and, and you and just being surrounded by type A quality SF guys. It, it was amazing just the sheer amount of data that came flying your way every day in the team room or on deployment. So um, when, when I had the epiphanies and I was a program manager at Marsoc and said, what do I know that could actually do me, you know, and do companies a service as a consultant? Um, I, I said, the SF truth, the SF principles. And some of that clearly was planning, contingency planning, because I think, and I kind of tweeted out the other day, right, that a lot of organizations feel they know how to plan and feel that they're preparing for every contingency, but it really doesn't. And I took that a step further and said, well, if we know this and, you know, doctrinally and a guy like Ron with his background, right, college degree, business owner, you know, SF, everything else, he should have thrived in that environment, you know. And if we think that because once you get these planning processes ingrained in you, and I'm not picking on you, Ron, I, I'm, I, I hate that what happened to you. But doctrinally, he should be the best candidate ever to start a restaurant or start a business of any type and, and thrive and succeed. So what happens is that often we don't put in place the right contingencies or we get something like the, the global financial crisis, you know, the GFC in 08 that hits and just throws a monkey wrench. And so talking with you and talking with Mike, you know, Mike's big on the financial planning for retirement. And, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but you know, I would like to kind of outline the different, you know, the five of us in the chat rooms input with Ryan and everybody else, what we feel planning is in contingency planning, just so we can help those, you know, young NCOs or young officers or whoever's transitioning, apply that to them so that they are better prepared during transition and they take into account a proper planning process and how it applies in the civilian world. And most importantly, those contingencies as well. <clears throat> yeah. Even if you're a, uh, you know, veteran and you're in the, the, private sector already and have been for some time frame, um, you know, this is still going to be very applicable because uh, in many cases, you know, you end up making a career change for several different reasons. And typically it's emotional. You hate your boss, you hate your company, you hate your job. So um, you're going to, you're going to want to focus in on tonight's uh, topic because we're going to try to hopefully get, uh, gear you towards how to establish a good solid plan uh, evaluate the risks that go along with that and develop some uh, solid contingencies. 
And, and we're our own worst enemies oftentimes, right? Because as we're going through training and you don't create a military guy without teaching them what failure is, and you definitely don't create a soft guy without them understanding what failure is and looks like. I mean, the Q course, especially with cadre like Mike Pritz hanging around, you were just doomed to fail you know, early and often. So you could never win if you tried. But then we get in the group, we get into the teams, and we, we get so used to winning that we forget what it's like to fail. And so when we transition and we start to fail again, it's anathema to us. We, we have no idea what that feels like. And then our pride kicks back in and we say, I can't be failing. I planned for this and, and I've thrived for so long. So we're our own worst enemies when, when we know in any other doctrinal area that we should just regroup, take a step back, relook at things, reapply some different resources and, and move out with a purpose. And yet we just get so frozen because this this impact of failure has hit us. Now, Scott, I think that you and Ron are both examples that I wasn't too hard to get past when you came through the Q course because you both came through when I was working there. Um, but I, I would like to think, you know, that maybe we all think we plan very well, right? I mean, that's what we all all base uh, what we what we do is in soft as, as our, our detailed mission planning. But sometimes when we approach a big decision like this, we don't plan very well. <clears throat> and what I heard Ron say is he was really more flowing like we do you know in cqb or, or close quarters battle he was flowing from one objective to the next rather than really stopping to do detailed mission planning which we'll talk about in a little bit but ron i, I just would like your perspective on that you know did you did you feel like you stopped each time and and did a, a detailed assessment of what you're going to do next or were you moving kind of flowing through room to room objective to objective no we were flowing the whole time and and every time even when we were uh even when we put together our business plan, it wasn't uh, it wasn't as detailed as it probably should have been. And our biggest problem, as far as the business went, is we didn't have enough just capital, and uh, and we basically borrowed everything to do it. And we didn't have enough capital behind us for a contingency plan. And so when things when and the biggest thing that we didn't plan on was me losing my job. And once, you know, because we could survive on just me if on my income. But when, uh, when, when I lost my job, that kind of put everything, uh, that really made it difficult for us. I mean, we, uh, uh, and we could, and it took us a long time to make up that income too. And so the, the restaurant, it, uh, our sales there dropped a lot just from the uh, financial crisis. And all of our contingency plans were just, were shot. You know, and and it was just hard to find a job at that point, uh, making the time time type of money without going overseas, and that that wasn't really an option. I got laid off, you know, six weeks before the birth of my second son, so I wasn't really looking forward to jumping out and going overseas. You know, and neither was Emily. So I think you kind of, you know, you're a prime example of that. Even when you did start establishing a plan, because initially um, you were kind of flying by the seat of your pants, and that's what a lot of people end up doing when they walk out the door. They don't really have a plan, so they start planning while they're in the mode, and that makes it even much more difficult to establish the proper risk and evaluate it so that you can, you know, but even the best laid plans sometimes have hiccups. And you've got to be aware that you're going to have those bumps and you have to be aware that um, you're, you're going to have to have plan B, plan C, plan D. Um, I think in your case, though, by the time you started hitting that point, it could be wrong, but it could be that you were trying to manage the constant while you're trying to plan for the future at the same time. And more than likely, the beast was was eating you up. And that was right now. And, you know, 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, we honestly, we couldn't even plan for much of the future. It was always just dealing with today. And let's get through today or get through this next catering job or this next weekend, you know. And, uh, and every time that we got, uh, that we got caught up, and we thought that we were going to, you know, be able to really start thinking about the future, something would happen. Either we'd have another kid or, um, uh, or you know, there'd be some sort of calamity at the restaurant, you know, because you always have equipment breaking or, or something at the house, you know, that would take money away from what we should have probably put back into the restaurant. And, uh, and so we always had to deal with it. I mean, we, we did all kinds of stuff to make it go. You know, we moved the restaurant. We, uh, we ended up moving it twice. And then it was a catering business its last year of ex- existence. And, uh, and we were doing okay, but we just couldn't make both of our lives, like the restaurant life and the amount of money that I could make, uh, happen in Nashville. And so in it, we ended up having to leave Nashville and sell the business. I've seen the same it, type of thing play out uh, with it yeah with education where you know people get off of uh, the military and they think that they're going to be able to go to college and everything's going to be fine and what they end up doing is going back home they end up getting a uh, most likely if they're not going to live with mom and dad a car payment um, rent utilities things start piling up that go outside of the school costs that uh, maybe the military's paid for with the gi bill and as i mentioned to many of them before they were leaving if you don't have a plan in place that's going to cover a lot of that the beast is going to take over and the beast is going to be your bills. You're going to start working part-time then. Then you're going to start making money to, to um, and you're going to be buying more things. You're starting to feed the beast more. College ends up taking less and less. Same thing applies to what you you found within the restaurant business. Yeah, and part of the biggest problem is, is we never, like in my wife and I, we talk about it all the time. I'd be like, why are you washing the dishes or why are you doing, you need to pay yourself or do the job that's worth more than, you know, the eight or ten dollars an hour job. I mean, you know, you need to be doing the stuff that's making the the you know the the twenty, twenty five dollars an hour as opposed to, you know, anybody can wash dishes. I would go in and wash dishes at night, you know. But she was basically she was the face of our company, but she would always get bogged down into in the today and could never do enough to market the future. You know, just because we were just always playing catch up. So, I mean, that I mean that's, a, that's a new paradigm. One of the, the new paradigms that many small businesses are running into, right, is that, A, we're in reactive planning mode because we're, we're always trying to, you know, be proactive and yet life is just bashing us amongst the head while we're trying to be proactive and we have to react constantly and it puts us out of our comfort zone. But one of the things that, that I tell my clients all the time is, you know, like you just said, Ron, do the things that you can do. And, you know, as staff guys, we know to do more with less. I mean, that's kind of ingrained in us from, from day one of training. So to me, it's easy. If, if I can, I'm not going to try and patch somebody up with an 18 Delta sitting there right beside me. Right. I'm going to say like, all right, Ron, Go for it. You do it, man. Like this is you. I'll stick to what I know. I'm going to use the tools at my disposal. Why can't we do the same things in the business world? I think that's a great point that you're identifying that with your wife and saying, manage your books, do this, do marketing, do the social media, do all the expensive stuff. We can pull somebody in or I can do it myself and the dishes and stuff. So that misallocation of resources, right, is kind of paramount as well. Some yes. people are going to be asking, uh, you know, how, how far ahead of time should you start the planning? I mean, when should the process begin? And I mean, it's as soon as you know that you're going to be wanting to execute something at some point. 
So what is that? Well, that it might be your transition. It might be when you want to make a career change and you got to uh, factor in what it is that you want to do, where you want to go, uh, you know, what is the, your plan and your goal for the next three to five years out and kind of step back and see the big picture at a 50,000 foot level uh, sense. And um, I'm sure, Ron, if you would have had that plan way ahead of time and understood what it was going to take and really done the research, which we're going to kind of get into as well, ahead of time, your outcome might have been a little bit different. And of course, your your mentor kind of, uh, your friend kind of warned you about that saying, well, you know, I mean, it's already a tough business to get into. And, um, you know, you got to make sure that you got a great plan, but in the restaurant business, I mean, let's face it, even with the best laid plans, um, it's a difficult, difficult business. Yeah. We, and we had a, a decent, I guess, um, uh, uh, business plan or whatever put together, but it was very pro growth. Like we thought, you know, Hey, we're going to come in, we're going to do this new stuff. And we kind of oversold ourselves. Basically we thought we could get a lot more out of it than we ended up being able to. And uh, just because it was, I mean, it's, I mean, the restaurant business is, and uh, it's um, very competitive, you know, and we were doing, uh, bringing, we thought we were bringing, you know, the next great thing to Nashville and, and it was, it was tough. And, uh, and then, you know, it didn't help matters just with everything else that happened too. So what made you finally decide that enough was enough and you needed to get out of the restaurant business? Well, what happened basically Emily said, all right, you can move. We, we, we'll move and we can sell the business because we just weren't getting by in Nashville. And I mean, we had, uh, at that point, we were, we were about a year after bankruptcy. And we, uh, so we dug ourselves a hole in 2008 and 2009. And, uh, and about a year, a year before we left, um, we actually went through the bankruptcy process to try to, to, try to hold on. And we, and it helped a lot. It eliminated some bills, but it just wasn't enough because we weren't getting anywhere. And at, at the end of the day, all we could deal with was right now. And uh, and so, eventually, I was like, you know, hey, I can get a full time job if we just leave. And we put the uh, we put the uh, the catering company at that point on Craigslist. And man, somebody called us like four days later, and we it was. We literally talked to the person that we ended up selling it to um, within the first five days of Craigslist. It was amazing. So, at any time, I, just, I have to ask, I guess, professional curiosity, but at any time did you think of going back in the group or trying to do National Guard stuff or utilizing your Delta skills somehow? I mean, what, where was that in the, in the whole planning? Well, we, I did, and we talked about it, and we talked about going back in and, uh, um, I just never, I could just never make the leap, you know, like once, you know, once we were around the kids and, and I could just, I knew the commitment that it would take to go back and, and start going overseas again. And I just couldn't do it. Um, you know, I had job offers to come back, you know, not only friends that were still in the national guard, but, but other, especially when I started contracting, they're like, Hey man, you, you know, you come over and, uh, full time. But, uh, well, I ask because it's pretty impressive, right? Because, you know, we've talked about this with Joe Healy before and the De Espresso guys and, and everybody else when they get on. And we have that strange comfort in the uncomfortable, you know, downrange deployments and stuff. And there's some very lucrative cash and stuff out there as well. So to me, that's a kudos to you to, you know, kind of 
no matter what the the storm was, just the weather and continue pushing forward with you know. Uh, I just I just wanted to know where you were in the whole kind of process as far as is chasing deployments or whatever. So, I think it's impressive you didn't. By the way, yeah, I don't know about that, but <laughs> um, the uh, it, the biggest one of the biggest mistakes I made though was I let my credentials expire as far as uh, medic credentials. So all of my uh, ETMP, all my paramedic license, that all expired when I was doing environmental work. Uh, because I thought that was going to be the future. I thought that's where I was going to stay. And because uh, at that point, I was you know a year and a half or so away from being a senior reviewer and actually making decent money. If it didn't drive me crazy, you know, if I could have just stuck to it. But then the the job itself kind of decided for me that it was time for me to go, even though I was looking to go anywhere. That's a great point, Ron. You know, as guys are are, are leaving the military, as they separate a lot of them, and I talk to them all the time. Um, they allow their clearance to expire, or like you said, your 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 medical credentials have expired. And even if you've been out for a while, you know, if if, if they're if they're current when you when you get out of the military, they're going to be current for a while after, and they're really not hard to stay on top of. It's one of the things that, as we're looking at contingency planning, um, you know, it, it's something that that you can maintain fairly easy, uh, even with a little bit of side side work contracting for the clearance, or or a little bit of a you know all the all the medical credentialing is done via online stuff through local community colleges anymore for us. So it's just something that these guys need to consider in their contingency planning to maintain any type of credentialing that they, they could use if they run into a problem like you did. Yeah, we keep hearing the same the same themes, right, Mike? That you know, when Robert left the, the army, he wanted to go as quickly and as far away from the army as he could. You know, when, when I left, you know, Marsoc is a is a federal guy. I, I did the same thing, right? And part of it was out of just geography. Moving to Australia definitely helped get me out of that realm. But you know, I think a lot of guys get so disenvisioned with where they are and what they're doing at the time that that skews a lot of their planning processes. You know, I will never go back and have to use my clearance again. Period. So I'm just gonna let it lapse. And, and it's a massive, you know, pain in the butt in hindsight. Yeah, I, I'm the same way, Scott. I, I, uh, I, I want to do something completely different and be be successful in a, a completely different area of the private sector. So I, I, I think that that's that's exactly the way I'm going. But at the same time, you know, looking at contingency planning, what if it doesn't work out? You know, what if two years from now uh, I get through a program and, and find an employment after I'm I'm recently credentialed is is no longer uh, you know, lucrative in, in my area. Well, I, I still got something to fall back on if I maintain. For me, it's just a clearance. I know it's a lot easier. Well, I think yeah. one of my, and it's in ground truth. Sorry, Ron, I'm not meaning to cut you off, man. Robert told me to cut you off earlier. Um, one of the, my favorite quotes is when, you know, in Pete Blaber's book, he says, Imagine the worst and humor imagination, right? Humor your imagination because it's going to happen. You know? And that's one of the things that we always say, like, Oh, there's no way a global financial crisis is going to happen and derail my restaurant dreams. And guess what? It happens. Yeah. The uh, it, what's crazy is it would have been wouldn't have been hard either to maintain my credentials. And and I talked to the uh, I talked to Marines that are are transitioning out of Marslock all the time about their contingency plans. And, and man, I, I try to be you know a. Uh, I don't know, a voice of warning or a voice of caution, you know, I was like, hey, it's not as easy as you think, you know, you can't just, that big contract isn't as easy to find uh, out there as, as, you know, you'd hope it would be, and uh, and not everybody's making big money, and especially the guys that are getting out that are like at 12 to 12 year mark, you know, or 12 or 14 years, and like, you know, your best contingency 
might be just making it to retirement. No, it's a lot of truth that, I mean, you, your contingency might be that you have to come back on active duty or in a, a guard or reserve role in order to, um, you know, keep your credentials to, uh, you know, make some money, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but you've got to lay it out for sure. And I think you also got to make sure that <clears throat> things don't kind of work at your time. So, you know, it might be that if you're going out to get certi uh, certified or recertified or you need to go get an education or something along that line that um, <clears throat> you may think that, all right, well, this is only going to take me six months. And when you get into it, the classes may not be available until a certain time period. The, um, the, the school that you're wanting to go to may not enroll for three to four months. Things don't work on your clock just because that's the way you wanted it. And now add children to the equation, right? I mean, anything that can go wrong with a kid to impact planning is going to go wrong. School tuition is expensive. Something happens, they get held back a year, they get sick. Heaven forbid they get sick. But something bad always consistently happens. So when you are contingency planning, you have to make sure that you're not only looking at yourself, but you and your spouse and your kids. And, and Ryan just said in the chat room, branches and sequels, right? Like take it down 15 different steps if you have to until you've literally exhausted every imaginable scenario possible so maybe it'd be helpful to go down through the mdmp and i i don't know uh, scott if you want to take us down that path or mike since you taught it it doesn't really matter and then i can kind of uh you know provide some insight as well as to how that might look with the as it relates to career change no i think we just follow follow scott's outline and i mean because i don't have mine pulled up in front of me and uh, i do have <laughs> <laughs> if I start talking off the top of my head, we'll, we'll end up getting way down a rabbit hole. You know, the first thing you do is receive a mission, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what that mission is. Um, in the military, it could be you know any number of core missions that we did in SOF. Um, and in the private sector, it could be you know what you're trying to accomplish. For me, I looked at a, a transition as as a mission, and I, I told you guys a story via email earlier this week that I got a good friend of mine. Some of you may know Jason Stanley, who's a fifth grouper. Um, Jason went through this whole process with his son as he was selecting, you know, what to do after high school, go to college, go to the military, which college to go to. And he, he led his son through through the entire process of mission analysis through the MDMP um, to ultimately make the decision of, of where he was going to go in life. It, it's the same the way I approach transition. And I, I honestly, I should probably, in full disclosure, because Beth is listening, I didn't do it very well. Um, like like all of us, I think on the show, except you, Robert. I think you walked right out and and, and accomplished what you were looking at. No, um, not right I, off the I, bat. No, it took. <laughs> I still fumbled for twelve months, thirteen months. So. Well, so I, I think I think that's still what we're yeah. what we're talking about is, is you know those of us who 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 claim to be you know masters of mission planning, detailed planning is is what we in soft do so very well, and we approach every mission that way. Um, as I was looking at transition, man, I had a lot of, uh, you know, to use one of Scott's terms, analysis paralysis. I've used that, I don't know, every day since uh, since he brought it up. I, I think uh, as I look back at my own transition, I mean, I, at first I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, you have all these offers out there. You have everything going on. You, you have your own desires and wishes. And, and as you detail it down in mission planning, you know, you, you've got you've to look at the end state, right? And that's that's what we get through. Step two of uh, mission planning is mission analysis. But as we do our mission analysis, we go through all the 17 steps of mission analysis. One of the key uh, things that we have to determine is our end state. And really, that should be one thing. It's one detailed item that we're all you know, trying to achieve. 
Uh, for me, it's it's turned out that I, I want to teach, and and that's the that's the goal that I'm now working toward. But if I if I never determine the end state, uh, I think I'd still be in that analysis paralysis mode. I'd still be kind of floundering around there, uh, trying to trying to take the contract jobs here and here and there, and 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 do some other things. And and Beth would be hounding me to go to work. So I, I think that that probably is one of the one of the key things that comes out of our our mission analysis cycle and determine a functional end state. So maybe that's uh, your purpose or passion then. Uh, I mean, because it really is what's going to drive you and make you want to, you know, reach that goal, whatever it is. And you you have to somehow either apply your purpose or passion to it, or it's it is your purpose or passion. Something's going to have to make well, that's you. What, yeah, I'm so happy you brought that up because, and again, Ron, I'm honestly not trying to to keep. I feel like I'm attacking you, and I'm not. We got so many tenth groupers in the chat room that I got to align myself with the other fifth grouper, you know. But um. I didn't hear you say passion and, and purpose in either your environmental job or the restaurant. So it just kind of, it, again, honest question. It's not an attack, but it just kind of flagged me as interesting that you were walking down this path, even though you seem to have no real desire to be on it. Well, no, I mean, at first I thought I had a, uh, my biggest passion when I got out was just to, to get out and to try to be, uh, to try to make it go, make it work, you know. I thought I was just going to be, you know, just another Joe civilian. And uh, as far as environmental work, I didn't know, you know, what I was doing really. And I didn't, I, I mean, I didn't honestly, I didn't put in the uh, put in the time to really talk to anybody that was doing it. And uh, and and I, at the time, I thought, you know, hey, working in the office isn't going to be that bad until you do it, you know. And uh, <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't horrible. And but uh, but a- after time, it just kind of wore on you, and I just like, I, I just didn't like it, and I w- and I certainly wasn't passionate about it. And as far as mission planning goes, I don't, I don't know if I ever really, you know, hey, where do I want to be in in five or ten years? I haven't, I don't honestly, I can't honestly tell you that I've even I even have that right now. <laughs> I think that's what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, the planning process, Ron. You know, because we all we all go through it. And, and we've said it, I think, on every podcast that, that the guys who are approaching transition, you know, um, you're not the first one to do it. But it seems we all do it the same way. We all we all kind of flounder through it. But if, if we if we look at man, just look at the mission analysis process, look at what you did on ODA as you were as you were looking uh, at the next mission, the next JSET, the next, you know, combat mission you were going to go on in, into the Middle East. Detailed planning goes into it, and when you're there, every mission is, is conducted with detailed planning. You know, there there are things, uh, and I'll, I'll throw out a couple of doctrinal terms like specified, implied, and and essential tasks. You know, those are those are key points of of mission analysis that we do for every mission. So why why don't we do that as we're as we're looking at transition, or as you're looking at a business venture? You know, what things do you know that you have to accomplish? You know, what things have to be accomplished? Uh, to accomplish those things, and I'm kind of summarizing what a specified and implied task is, and then what things, as an essential task, what things must you accomplish in order to be successful? Uh, that's kind of what I'm looking at. As as, and I've got a long runway. I'm going to use the term runway because Robert's beat it into my head over the last couple of <laughs> shows. But I'm, I've got a long runway that I've got I've got to accomplish that in. Uh, but I, but I know I've got specified tasks. I've got implied tasks that have to be accomplished so I can accomplish each of those specified tasks. And I've got essential tasks that I've got to meet along the way to, to make my certification. Uh, I just think that if if 
if we stress that uh, as you approach transition, if you look at it from a very strict doctrinal format that we all understand, uh, I think a lot of us will be more successful. And one key word I'll throw in there as well, Mike, is assumptions, because we all assume and make assumptions that the office isn't going to be as bad as as it will be, right? I I had a massive assumption when I got to Sydney about consulting, and I said, you know, hey, I love to teach. SF guys are teachers. I can talk this stuff all day long. I've got this new and unique offering in the kinder group, and it's all these SF truths, and they're going to love it. I, I got these vehicle guys who did mobile vehicle inspections in Sydney, and I was consulting with them, and my assumption was that a client would actually listen to me and apply the things that I was trying to beat into their heads and they wouldn't you know they neither listened and then they they would bash me on like the daily post meetings I'm like well what have you done from last meeting guys and well we haven't gotten any of that because the stuff you outlined is too hard I'm like we took it down the baby steps so I had to take a good hard look in the mirror as well and say I'm doing something wrong. I'm assuming something incorrectly about this whole process, and I need to back out. So I took a month, and, and I had the, the runway, as Mike and Robert have said. I had that runway to take and back off and go, okay, that was a massive assumption, and we're at to push that, you know, kind of, you know, work, you know, not work harder, not smarter, then it would have failed. It would have been horrendous for me. But by taking the time back and teaching them and their styles and, and dialing back my expectations as well, Things got things improved quickly. The fact a lot of us assume that we're doing the right thing, or a lot of us assume that maybe we did plan well enough. But then, shortly thereafter, we get out and realize, oh crap, my planning, would you know, wasn't good enough to make me where I needed to be. I had no plan when I retired, except for I was going to be a stay-at-home mom, and that failed miserably because my kids wanted nothing to do with me after six months. So then <laughs> yeah. I had no plan because I truly believed the one thing I was going to do was it, and right. so I ended up being lost because of it. You know, and I think, uh, Scott, the fact that you stepped back and reassessed yourself, because, I mean, many people would have just kept trying to pound it through somebody's throat, you know, that uh, it's not me, it's you. And yet you uh, were able to understand that sometimes uh, different teaching styles or the way you're approaching things, uh, you need to reevaluate. And I think it's the same thing when you you start working on the plan. At times you need to step back. You might want to step away from your plan for a couple of days, go back and look at it. And then you go back and look at it and go, geez, this is like all ate up. It's just not, you know, what I think it should be. My guys at Barsock will laugh because in addition to my many other duties, I, I designed exercises to teach and train the, the special activities guys. So I had this series of five to seven whiteboards on this massive rolling thing in my office. And every I would draw out these elaborate you know, whiteboard diagrams of this is what we're going to do in Rocky Mountain Union and in Colorado. This is what we're going. This is what we're going to do. This is the whole scheme of the exercise. And so I'd tell these master sergeants and gunnery sergeants who came into my office, sit down, I'm going to draw out this whole plan, and then I'm going to leave and go get a cup of coffee and talk to people for half an hour. And when I get back, you have to tell me three things that are wrong with it because I've been staring at this thing. I can't find a flaw in it to save my life, and I know that there are a 100 flaws. So I would force people to start telling me what the flaws in the plan were and the assumptions and everything else. And you know what? The exercises got better. They got great reviews. They grew. Everything worked because I took, and again, it's another word we've been throwing around, right? That pride. I took pride right out of the equation, and I just said, hey, fix it. Like, Tell me what's wrong with it. So if we can learn to do that, that'll help us as well. That was one of the, my biggest mistakes was – I didn't talk to anybody. I thought I could just do it myself, you know? And it, through this whole process, and 
everything. I just thought that, hey, you know, why, why am I, why couldn't I just do this myself? I don't need to go talk to anybody. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and apparently, you know, my planning it wasn't it wasn't very good either. Well, that's what so we keep talking to, right? about is the plan, right? You know, Robert's mentioned it, Scott's mentioned it. You said your planning is not very good. As like I said earlier, kind of the, the the end state is what we develop our plan from. So as you get through mission analysis, you 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 identify what the end state is. You can't make a plan until you know what your end state is because that's how you how you develop the entire thing. But how do you get to how do you get to the plan? I mean, you don't just jump from, hey, this is what I want to do. I know a lot of times the team sort of says, this is how you're going to do it. Um, but the way doctrinally we all do it is we, is we go through course of action development. And, um, and we come with, with several, several ways to achieve the end state, right? And, and after we've, we've, we've developed these you know, two or three different ways to get there, I mean, you guys know my story. I came out and I thought I knew it all. Hell, I've been a team sergeant, right? So I, I just jumped on the first plan. It was the, the shortest distance to the goal. And I had some, some of my mentors kind of refocus me and the plan got a lot more detailed and longer. So I, I think that once we once we develop multiple courses of action, we go into that you know wargaming process and we compare them to determine which is the best one. And we, we talked about this earlier in the week. How do we how do we accomplish that wargaming? Well, on an ODA, the Intel sergeant, he plays the enemy and we fight the battle. And and this is what we're gonna do at this stage of the battle. And the Intel sergeant says, Well, if I'm the enemy, this is exactly what I'm gonna do to counter you. Based on that. We identify those things Ryan's been talking about in the in the chat room, the branches and sequels for our contingency planning. Uh, but but in you know if it's not a battle, I think it's still applicable. You know who who is going to that's that's kind of the big thing for me is who is going to play the intel sergeant um, if you're in your your restaurant business or you know if you're in the pharmaceutical industry or if you're doing something you know in in, in the private sector. For me, looking at transition, um, you guys know that that Beth played the Intel Sergeant for me. She was the one that would always question my decisions as I was selecting route forward. Um, somebody has to do that. Somebody has to be the devil's advocate because you don't have all the answers. And, and if you don't go through that process with somebody shooting holes in them, uh, then you're never going to identify the branches and sequels that lead us into contingency planning. Yeah, it goes back to finding that mentor or that person that you can trust or both and having those individuals give you the real hard facts. And I know that uh, Beth sounds a lot like my own spouse. I mean, she'll be the first one to start nailing down 20 different questions before I even, I just come up with a brilliant idea and already it's getting shot down in the first 30 seconds. So uh, I know then that the idea is great, but I need to get better at doing my homework and coming up with all the different courses of action and knowing how to counter those things when it starts coming to the time where people start, you know, asking me the tough questions. I, I've got to know the answers to those tough questions. I got to know how I'm going to overcome this. I don't even take those. an idea to my wife anymore before I've thought of over a war game for about 30 <laughs> days in my head. I used to go instantly to her, but then I got shot down so many times that now I come up with a better plan. So, hey, it validates what you guys are saying. It impacts my planning as well. Like, how do you play war gaming in the civilian world? Mike, that was to you. Well, I, I think it'd be the same way, Robert. I, I think I'm going to pitch it to you in a second. Uh, but I, I think it would be the same way. Uh, I haven't, I haven't, I mean, just simply because I haven't done it, Robert. But I, I think that if you're if you're moving forward on any type of decision, I, I, regardless of the business, right? Any type of decision, if the leader or the manager is the only one with the input that makes the decision, then there's nobody to to kind of shoot holes in his reasoning 
And, and if he's the only guy to do it, then he's going to be the guy that either succeeds or fails. And I think a lot of times if you don't see, you know, the, 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 the obstacles that, that are before you, then you might fail. I, Robert? Yeah, no, it's the same thing. I mean, it's the reason why you have boards within uh, companies. It's the reason why you have a good team of staff members that you can call on that report up to you. And it's the reason why I would always surround myself with smarter people than myself that work for me. Um, that would be in the room. And of course, if, if they didn't, um, I didn't really care if they, uh, matter of fact, I didn't want them to agree with me. And I didn't care if there was a little bit of um, tension within the room and how they, um, because it was all great feedback and all great discussion, because somebody would come up with something as an idea or a plan as a course of action. And the other person would shoot it down and go, no, that will not work. And this is the reason why. And it, because they Patrick were bringing their professions in. in his books, right? He says conflict is great. Conflict is yes. necessary for the successful incorporation of planning. It's not just the military. I don't think Lencioni's ever been in the military. It's you're right. I mean, it, amen. It's it's exactly right. You got to have somebody that dispassionately looks at your plan and goes, "No, not going to work." You know, sometimes and then you we have to find out why. Well, we call them sometimes, uh, and I'd have my staff that wouldn't understand what I was trying to say, but I, I came up with like a disinterested person. So in other words, somebody who has no interest in the outcome of it, um, they're not going to be a part of how it's going to play out, but they're kind of, so they're kind of disinterested in that aspect of it um, because they're not tied in, but they're going to be the hardest, they're going to be the ones that it's going to be hardest to convince. You've got a project management truism, right? Yeah. Not all stakeholders are positive. Negative stakeholders are going to impact your plan just as much as your champions or your or your positives. You gotta you gotta work and deal with both, though, because and again, that's why we have boards. That's why before you take your plan as an E8 to the general, you have to have those steps to go through because you have to your plan has to survive that first contact with the enemy, right? And that contact with the enemy are people within the same organization for it to succeed. In a corporation, a board of directors. Is is not going to you know, write a blank check just because you said it's a great idea or because your staff said it was a great idea. They're going to want to see the course of action. They're going to want to see the plan. So what you guys are talking about is, is course of action you know, um, comparison. It's, it's war gaming. It's, it's the same thing I, I talked about a little bit ago and laid out. Uh, from your perspectives, we're talking about the course of action comparison. And, and Robert, what you kind of laid out too is as the guy in charge to the next step is, is the decision. You know, Once everything has been you know, war gamed out, you've identified your branches and sequels that will go into contingency planning later. Um, you've got to make a decision and then you've got to start uh, applying resources towards that. And I'm sorry, Ron, I know I caught you off. No, that's all right. We, uh, we just, we kind of ended up in an echo chamber because, you know, we, we were such a small business. It was really just a couple of us at a time making the decisions. And you really have to make an effort when you go out there is to reach out to other people you know, to, to, to bounce the, the ideas off of them. You know, when it was just me and my wife sitting down talking about everything, it just wasn't enough. I mean, we should have, we should have reached out to other people and really talked to other people when we could, you know, people that we trust. So that was one of, that was one of our biggest mistakes. You know, and, and um, I never really was so much a consensus uh, person. Uh, to me, it was more about I wanted to listen to all the different plans. Usually, we either came up together and agreed upon the, the solution that we wanted to go to, or as a leader, I had to make the decision. And um, because at the end of the day, I'm going to be the one reporting to the executive vice president or the board of directors about what the decision was and why it was that I executed on 
you know, X number of dollars in order to drive our goals and objectives in that direction. Um, so at the end of the day, I want to make sure it was Robert that made that decision. And that's the same thing an individual has to do in this process as well. You've got to make sure you're willing to live with the plan and the decision that you're coming up with um, and the course of action that you're going to choose. So I think, I think the way that a lot of businesses do that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I know the way we do it in the military, and, uh, and I'm a product of Air Force School, not the Sergeant Major Academy, so I know the way the Air Force teaches it is to use decision support matrices, right? So we determine a criteria uh, for each of our courses of action or each of our, each of our methods to, to achieve our, our end state. Um, and, and along that criteria, it doesn't matter what it is, but we weight that so one may be more important than another. And we, we evaluate each of those uh, courses of actions against the criteria. And it, you know, it's a simple math problem at that point. You can look at it. You can change it. Uh, but ultimately, if you've, if you've weight, weighted your criteria correctly, then, then the, the decision support matrix is going to support whichever course of action is best uh, to get you to the instant. And, and I mean, what you're really the doing there. You made, sorry, Robert. The point you made, Mike, that's worth repeating is that you can change those weights on those decision values. If, if circumstances change, the market changes, you know, volatility, uncertainty, you know, complexity and ambiguity hit, VUCA hits, you can change those values on that without impacting the overall decision making process. It's just helping you, aiding you in making that decision. So, great point. You know, I mean, what you really just uh, described here is something I used to teach a lot of my associates is that you. You have to remove the emotion out of the decision process. So what you've done by creating weighted values in the in this uh, process step is that um, you set the criteria, you set the weighted value, the answer to what you want is going to come out. And, and so that way it stops you from trying to skew it so that you get what you want out of it. Instead, you've already set the criteria, you've weighted each, and the right answer is going to reveal itself if you've done it correctly. And it removes the emotion out of it. Yeah, exactly. And and that puts us on a course of action toward our end state that should we should apply all of our resources toward. And and once that decision is made, ultimately the the manager, the leader, whoever is responsible has has the responsibility for that uh, and is liable for it. But but that's where all of your resources go. And and then we go into the next phase, which is contingency planning. You know, we we've identified what possibly could go wrong in the wargaming process. And for each of those items that we made a note of, this could go wrong, this could go wrong, we go back into the planning process and we develop a course of action that if that happens, this is exactly what we're gonna do. And it becomes a battle drill. Um, we, we've already got a plan against it. So so as you're moving down that road, an unforeseen obstacle appears, boom, we just apply this, this towards it. And it could be any number of things. Um, I'm sure Ron, looking back, you could see the obstacles and would have liked to have had that, hey, I could have applied this, I could have moved resources around or whatever. Um, but but that's that's the way we do contingency planning. And generally, we do it in depth, right? We use an acronym called PACE for Primary, Alternate, Contingency, and Emergency. Uh, we have multiple methods to employ against these branches and sequels when they when they pop up uh, so that if the first uh, solution doesn't work, we, we go back at, after it with something else. You know, and I think as you go through this, in some cases, um, you've got to be prepared that you might be only able to mitigate the risk or mitigate uh, and bring it down to a level of, of contingency that's manageable, but you may not be able to totally eliminate it to nothing. Um, so, I mean, there's going to be, um, 
you know, obstacles that could come up or things that are going to happen that may be totally out of your control. Could be, um, you know, I, in some cases, I'll give you an example. It could be government related. It could be, um, you know, related to the economics. Could be related to things that are totally out of your control that are going to play a part within your decision process. So because of that, what you can do is only hope to mitigate it down to a level that you can actually, or what you control, you know, what you can manage. And corporate culture has a lot to do with this as well, because one of the strengths, and it's something that I'm, I'm crazy passionate about that Mike just said, is that once that decision has been made and that leader, you know, has, has made the decision, especially in SF, and, and I'll talk to that and, and everybody can second if you want to, but that's the only thing I know. Like, I have no conventional military time at all, so I can only talk to, to SF. But once that decision has been made, all the resources on that ODA or that element that, that has been tasked are all now in unity and align towards that common purpose in that end state. And that's a very powerful tool. And if you can replicate that through a successful corporate culture, now you're truly winning because instead, typically if the boss makes a decision, you've got about a 50-50 split within the organization in the civilian world that says, I'm on this side of the fence or I'm on this side of the fence. And you don't have that same, Susan, I, I can see you nodding, so I think you're going to have some input to this, but you don't have that same unity uh, and resources aligned towards that common end state. And that that's where you start to fragment over time, either quickly or slowly. Maybe Susan doesn't have anything to say. <laughs> no, just, it's just, it's, it's still a lot of acronyms for those of us who don't know. And so trying to put the words to the acronyms and trying to, you know, relate. To, I've been retired 10 years. So a lot of what you talk about, I still don't understand because one, I wasn't combat. I wasn't infantry. I sat at a desk. And so... It's, I guess it's different for me. I view things a little bit differently um, in, in the planning perspective of it because when I was an admin chief in the Marine Corps, planning was relatively simple. I made sure everyone got paid. I made sure everyone got their mail. And I made sure that, you know, I didn't screw up their pay. It wasn't that difficult. I, you know, I wasn't shooting at anyone and no one was shooting at me. So I think that's part of the reason that I failed when I retired and didn't plan accordingly because my plans in the Marine Corps were simple. And like I said, I never got to go to combat. So my experience is much different than yours. You know, but if you think about it, how it relates to the private sector, Susan, I mean, you know, you're probably doing planning stages when it comes to budgets. You're doing planning stages to make sure that um, whether you're trying to affect the top, you're trying to affect the bottom line, um, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to do, make more widgets, improve the quality, whatever it is, you're making plans to success along that way. And when you're doing that, that's really kind of the planning process that we just outlined. You're probably taking these steps, whether you realize it within that process, in evaluating um, and looking at the you know, critical steps that go along the way, uh, the courses of action, deciding whether or not what is the best course of action could be. Is it a your course of action could be whether you're deciding whether it's a, a um uh, you're going to procure from a one um, company versus company, you know, B, company A versus company B. Uh, what is the best uh, company to be able to resource to, well, or get resources from? You're going to evaluate bo both courses of action, the cost, everything that come along with that. Again, you're following through these steps of what we're talking about. And somebody's probably going to play devil's advocate and jump up and go, yeah, but you know what? What if this happens? Or what if, you know, what if we haven't prepared for that? And then that's that kind of of that um where we're doing the war gaming that we described too 
So if you really kind of think of it of what you do in your daily life or what you're doing in the private sector in your job, a lot of the steps are probably there. You just do it without thinking about that there is a schematic on a piece of paper that guides you through it. Right. It becomes and so when you bring up wargaming, really what you're talking about is having the intel sergeant or the mentor telling you which course of action you should take. In 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 those situations, no. no. What I'm talking about is it in in a setting if you were on my team like right now and we were talking about it going a certain way <clears throat> you would lend your input negative positives everything else somebody else is going to do the same thing from a different perspective um and together we're going to start hearing about all the pros and cons that are going into this and mike maybe you're thinking along a different line no i, I was just saying it's it's exactly exactly what you said robert somebody has to identify the the things that i've forgotten or that i haven't brought up Right. It, and it's you're not telling me which way to take take the plan. You're not telling me which course of action right. I'm going to take. Um, you're just going to tell me the things that uh, I've failed to identify. And that's going to help me develop the plan and develop a planning process for all of those contingencies of things that could go wrong. And it could be that those are individual jobs. Like, for instance, I managed um, a team that had finance, that had <clears throat> data, that had um you know, uh, work with pharmaceutical company or whatever. I may have different. So they're all going to bring in different perspectives from whatever that decision is that I'm asking them to evaluate. Each one of them are going to bring their own skills and experience to that and be able to say, yeah, but have you thought about this? Or have we thought about that? Or, you know, whether it's financial, whether it's um, procurement, whether, it, you know, everybody's going to lend something. And so you may be doing that within your decision-making process if you're being asked an opinion, at least um, on a on a panel uh, or in a you know a staff room or you know staff and it call, it happens all the time, right? I, I send out an yeah. outline for today's show. Mike sends back an email that says, "I like this," and I also like that there's 17 steps, you know, mission analysis. And then you send back Robert other talking points about you know different viewpoints and and you know tiered levels of viewing and everything else. So that's doing the same exact thing that we're talking about. It's just in an informal manner over email, as opposed to sitting in a room and having everybody contribute with their strengths and weaknesses to the overall success of the plan. But it's a great question and a great point, Susan because I don't want it to be lost in kind of translation of what we're talking about, that we're trying to talk about something that's combat related or ODA related. or This is not rocket science for sure. And this is just a, <clears throat> a process that's been proven to be successful. And whether or not it's called the same thing within the private sector, the process is, is basically the same. It's, it's followed. In order to reach success, you have to measure your you know, your different courses of action, evaluate the um, the things that could go wrong, um, ensure that you mitigate that process, you know, assess the risk and everything to go with that, come up with a solid decision and go and execute. And like you said, I think I do that at work, but it's never been written down and there's no formal name for it. And so it kind of gets lost in translation because maybe I don't realize I'm already doing it. And I think for people who get out of the military, they may do a little bit of it, but because they're not writing it down and maybe not getting a mentor, they're not doing it well enough, correctly enough, in detail enough, like the things you talked about before. I, I think they do a lot of it, Susan. I know I do. I, I'm sure I'm sure these guys do. Uh, everybody listening that I know in the chat room, I know they do. Um, and, and something, it, I'm not going to take it down a rabbit hole, I promise, just real quick. Um, something we do that's, that's a very much abridged uh, version of this is called crisis planning. 
and everybody does it when, when we have a crisis that appears before us. Uh, those of us with formal training uh, in, in military decision-making processes will apply the steps as we see the information before us, and then we'll, we'll individually go through them. So I, I do think you're absolutely right, Susan. I think people that, that come from our background, and it's a, it's, a great, it's a great point of what you can add to an organization uh, once you get out. Is just that ability to think on your feet, to apply the principles that you've you've used for years to to do some problem solving. So you know, I mean, if we wanted to apply this, uh, some of the notes that I had taken, you know, and how this applies for the private sector, or at least in terms of transition, is kind of <clears throat> sitting down, as we have talked about in the past, and looking at your likes and dislikes, and researching your future career to find out, you know, if it's going to be a big career move that you're talking about, like going into um, something entirely different than what you're doing today, or is it less? Um, in the case of like Ron, it was something in totally different than what he was doing when he was in the military. So that required a lot more research, a lot more study, of maybe a longer runway, a lot more planning, a lot more mentoring, um, make an assessment of what it is that you're capable of doing right now. How are you going to be able to do it? Um, again, if you're going to be an entrepreneur and start your own company, what do you know about starting your own company? What do you know about writing a business plan? What do you know about marketing? What do you know about getting funding? What do you know about paying the bills and making sure that you're delivering the quality service on time, hiring people and having to fire people, quite honestly, <clears throat> you know, making those tough decisions that are not just um, at times, I mean, in the military, we don't fire people necessarily. So when you're out here in the private sector, having to do that and the, um, you know, it's not a, a comfortable thing to have to do, but uh, it is, a, a, unfortunately, something that you have to be very much aware of and the, know the skills and to do that tactfully. Um, you know, so evaluate your skills, the people around you, evaluate your training and education needs, tap into your network, find a mentor, and then build your contingencies. So this would be kind of the plan that kind of follows along with the same steps that we talked about in, in a way. And then you're going to have the people that will shoot holes in it and start saying, well, okay, I, I just don't think that's a great plan because of X. Have you thought about this? You know, I'm sure if we all, and, and even Ron probably sets in hindsight, you know, is always 2020. So when you start thinking back, you can think, God, if I would have done this, if I'd have done that, and then we probably could have taken the folks that are here and said, you know, Ron, but did you ever think about, and Ron would have probably thought, no, we never did think about that as well. It's all of that kind of conversation that you, you talk to your friends about and mentors and stuff like that that kind of help you through your planning process to make sure that you're coming up with a good, solid decision. Hey, real quick, Robert. Um, Ryan had a great question I think that I'd like to pose to the, the panel here, if you will. He says, how does the saying, it's better to make a good decision with minimal information in a timely manner rather than make the best decision with all the information too late apply to the civilian business sector? Wow. Run that by me. <laughs> <laughs> it's better to make a good decision with minimal information yet in a timely manner rather than make the best decision with all the information too late. You know, it's, uh, I mean, many times within, I know within the military, we, uh, we have to make those types of timely decisions because it could be a life or death situation. I can tell you within the private sector that that's not normally the case. It's not a life or death situation unless you're in a field where it's medical and you're actually a doctor, physician, nurse, or somebody that's dealing with a life or death situation. 
Otherwise, you really should take the time to do the proper due diligence and make sure that you've planned accordingly. Um, and if there is a short runway and you've got to make a quick decision, yeah, you're going to have to do it with the best information you have available, but you got to be willing to live with that decision because it could cost you your job. Yeah, One of I the think hardest that, things I had to learn since being in the civilian world is time, like you talked about before. Civilians work at a much slower pace than what we're used to, especially in the decision-making, because they will take their time to make decisions, to make sure they do make the best one. It's a publicly traded company of somebody else's money. Like Mike, and you know, we talked about several podcasts ago. And when you're talking about dealing with somebody else's money, you better make sure you're taking the time to assess everything. Uh, as you I'll, I'll argue, though, it's it's a very fine line. It is. Because yeah. far too often you get too used to having that desire to get more and more information and that comfort with having time on your side or the ability to wait it out and see. When, again, you know, a couple episodes ago I was talking about Air Bread and Breakfast is now, you know, past the Hilton Hotel is a number of rooms it offers around the world, right? So there are paradigm-breaking social economies on the verge of further collapsing a lot more of what's going on on these established businesses, right? Blockbuster is now pretty much gone and Hollywood video is gone because of the iPad Craigslist killed newspapers, you know? So when you, when you, well, you know, you know, but there's VUCA, you know, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, that's alive. And so one of the things that you have to, to do is be understanding and cognizant of what time you actually have and then once you understand that time parallel that you have and, and where you are then make the best decision based on what you have if you know that you have a long runway as you call it robert then you can take the time but sometimes you have to be able to be nimble and adaptive in a, in a volatile economy or else it might not be life and death but it might be catastrophic enough so that you're now in react mode versus proactive mode unless you're working for a fast follower yeah. We did. Uh, we had plenty of times where we had to make a quick decision on, uh, as far as uh, like a job to pick up. Uh, hey, can we do this? You know, because people want to know, especially when they're working in catering or whatever, they wanted to know something like now, like today. And we just had to make those decisions whether it was we were survivable. Like if we could survive it, kind of what you were just saying, Scott is all right. Well, this might not be the right decision. We're going to do it. Uh, we just got to make sure we can survive if this thing goes really bad. You know, so as back to the, the original question, you know, sometimes you do make the, those decisions kind of pretty quick within a day, especially on jobs like that. But, you know, you don't, generally the, the business wasn't ever going to die because of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, you've, well, you've... And, and, you know, again, it's it's understanding the actual implications of that bad news, right? And again, going back to Pete Blaber, because I was recently listening to, you know, his book recently, um, Don't Get Treed by a Chihuahua, right? And, and far too often, I love that quote, because we see a tiny little problem, and we want to run and hide and get up a tree and act like it's going to kill our company, when even if that problem showed its true ugly head and reared it and bit you as hard as it can, you might need a stitch, but you're not going to lose your leg, you know, and I'm talking to a couple 18 deltas in the room. So bad analogy, right? But um, pain is a patient's problem. I understand. But yeah, I, you know, I think it it, uh, it comes down to how much, like you said, it well, very well, how, how much time do you have? How much the, uh, time is the company allowing you to have? And when it goes to you from transition, it's how much time do you have as well? Um, <clears throat> did you do enough planning with enough time to figure out what it is that you want to do? So if you're thinking right now, three, five, ten years out, <clears throat> then you're going to be fine. 
you know, because you, you're going to make sure you follow the right steps and evaluate and assess over and over again your plan. And it becomes a living document as you start living through it as well to make sure that it's there. Go this ahead. is why I love the analogy of the Iron Triangle and project management. And, and PMP studies are all about time, scope, and, and resources, right? So, or time, cost, and, and scope. If one extends, then the other by default have to shorten or lengthen with that because everything starts out as isosceles, you know, 390 degree triangle. And yet if you say I've got less time, then either the cost is going to increase or the scope of the project has to decrease. Or if you need a bigger scope of the project, then either the time is going to increase or the cost will definitely increase. So when you think of it that way, right, like that iron triangle, three simple factors to take into account when you're when you're planning and looking at contingencies and how much time you actually have. If that's a very short leg on the time scale, then you've got more ability to impact the scope and the cost. But if you've got a very long time, then you're going to have either less money or less scope at your availability or available to you, I should say. You know, something we haven't talked a lot about is, is time. And maybe it's a topic for another podcast altogether because we can talk about time and reverse order planning and, and task management for, for quite a while. What we have been talking about is deliberate planning. And in deliberate planning, you always you always assume one of the assumptions back from you know what we were talking about earlier that that you have plenty of time to conduct that kind of planning, and um, I, I think that there's a lot of difference in in what the current conversation is and, and what we've been talking about is in deliberate planning, you, you assume that you've got plenty of time to to reach all the steps of the mission analysis process. Well, that's where it, it helps to have somebody come in and give you an evaluation because I'm sure Ron probably thought he had enough plan uh, time to you know execute his plan, and he thought he probably had a great plan, and and then when he walked into it, it was and you know it was then planning on the fly, um, you know I'm assuming because I've run into similar situations, Ron. No, yeah, that's true. I mean, we thought it was everything was going to work great. I mean, you know, why wouldn't it? We planned it, right? And uh, but. You know, it's just stuff happens, and things are a lot harder than what we what we anticipated. You know, as far as us, as far as what we did, anyway. Yeah, I mean, so you know, kind of covering in summary some of the things that we talked about this evening, because I think uh, we've hit on so many different topics, and you know, the even the best laid plans, um, you know, are you know they could fail, or that you could have some problems and road bumps. So what you want to do is make sure that you've um, establish a solid enough plan and thought about the contingencies, thought about your backup plans, had somebody help assess it. So as we kind of run down through it, it's really what are you trying to do? Um, how many different ways are there to do it? So what are the, some of the ways that you could accomplish your goal? Um, think about your course of action analysis, your strengths and holes in your course of action. Uh, look at uh, what's your you know best way or preferred way to kind of move forward um, you know, look at the uh, decision that's made, rally everybody around that, you know, and what it is that you're wanting to do and move forward and execute on it. But also think about it from a contingency standpoint. Have you really thought about those things that are important um, in your contingency, um, such as truly assessing and mitigating the risks that are along the way, um, the potential time lags that it could cause, and uh, to make sure that you're successful in the end. But <clears throat> you know, reach out to your network, reach out to your mentors, reach out to those people you trust, get their feedback. And, uh, you know, I think you'll go a long way. If you just try to do it in a vacuum and try to think of your plan as a successful plan and you got it all buttoned up and you're good to go and nobody's as smart as you are, um, then you're probably going to hit some road bumps along the way. Um, you know, there's going to be challenges that you're going to have to overcome. 
So uh, appreciate everybody that came into the uh, Mixler chat room this evening. And uh, for those of you who aren't able to join us on this podcast show, make sure you do it again in the future by joining at MIXLR.com, creating an account, and that way you can come right on in and ask questions during the show or uh, be able to chat and and, uh, learn some things uh, with the staff here. And uh, appreciate everybody as well that's gone out and listened to our podcast shows out afterwards on SoundCloud as well as iTunes, uh, Pod Fanatics, and all the other locations that they're at. We recently started up a uh, YouTube site. We might start putting up a couple uh, uh, shows, some good ones out there as well. You'll hear about that more as we tweet those out or put it on Facebook. Be sure to join us on Facebook and Instagram as well. And uh, look for us at mentorsformilitary.com. That's mentors, F-O-R, military.com. We'll see you again uh, this Wednesday uh, for our next show. Uh, So for Mike, for Susan, for Scott, and for Ron, I appreciate everybody. Y'all have a great evening.